morning. Let me just address the elephant in the room, just an infected finger. I will be fine. Uh, no power tools involved this time. Um, I don't know if that's better or worse. It's uh, nothing of me. It's just uncomfortable and unsightly. So I have hidden it from your view. Although if you want to see photos later, you're very welcome to. Uh, let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we continue to reflect on walking your ways, that you would help each one of us to, to mine out of this passage the particular parts of our own lives where you would have us grow and continue to seek lives in the Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Now, I want to start by telling you that it's very easy to misunderstand Christianity. If, if, you, if you just came to a passage like today's one, on its own, with no context, you could be forgiven for getting Christianity completely back to front. It's a common misconception of what Christianity is, that it's this form of religion that's all about doing good. It's all about being the right sort of person. I don't know if you've come across this view, it seems to me to be the most common one, is that Christians are good people. Christians are those who are seeking to please their own God by doing the right things, whether it's the form of religion, whether it's morality, right? That, that Christianity is about doing good in order to achieve some sort of reward. Now, if that's what you think about Christianity, you've gotten it completely back to front. Uh, we've seen over the last seven weeks as we've read through Ephesians, and this, this is our habit, we just work our way through books of the Bible, it sets the topics for us. We've seen over the last seven weeks that it's not true. You see, the basic truth is this, there is no human being who can please God. That, that includes each one of us. Christianity doesn't teach that you can somehow achieve some sort of level of goodness that will begin to... We can't. In fact, it's even worse than that because it's not even that we can't please God but there's no action that will move us from being His enemy to being His friend. We can't do it on our own. The picture from the last couple of weeks, despite Joe's attempts to subvert it, is of cut flowers. <laughs> uh, once they've been cut off the tree, they're now dead. Th that's it, they're gone. However much they may still bloom and blossom, that doesn't connect them back to the tree. They're dead. They're cut off. The heart of Christianity begins there. We are sinners, the Bible says, that's that word for rebellion against God, and nothing we can do can restore it. But, that was, that was the, one of those glorious words we saw early on, wasn't it? But God has done what we needed for us. When we were dead in sin, we read, He took our sin, placed it onto Jesus, so that He, the one who was innocent, would suffer the consequences in our place. That's the heart of Christianity. Not that you can somehow achieve goodness on your own, but that God has taken the righteousness of Jesus Himself, God come in the flesh, and declared it to be ours. Mine, yours, not earned, not deserved, a gift. 
God's mercy we talk about, God's grace, that's just generosity, the thing that he gives us that we don't deserve. Such that the way the Christian now lives this side of salvation is the life of the new life. It's the plant that's been grafted back in again. And so whatever bloom is produced is produced because of the one who grafted into the tree, not because we somehow strive and do it for ourselves. And so the last couple of weeks, and really the rest of the book as we explore it, is that question of what does the flower look like? Now that we've been grafted back in, now that God has taken us by his own mercy and kindness, given us life such that we can now live a life that pleases him, well, what does it look like? How are we to walk lives worthy? Now today's passage, I want to start with that kind of the background because today's passage really just is six areas of application. It's just this is how you are to live. This is what the flower looks like. This is what a life worthy of the calling is. Now, as we work our way through them again, it's one of those passages where I think you're not necessarily going to see yourself in all of them. But I suspect you'll see yourself in at least one of them. And so really the challenge for you is to listen and listen out for yourself, which is the one that God is talking to me today. Now, uh, there's, uh, I think, six areas, and uh, they all follow roughly a similar pattern. As he says, don't do this, do do this because of this. Right? Don't do because. And let's just work our way through them, see the pattern, and have a little bit of a chat about each one as we go. And the first one he picks up is lies and truth. Have a look at verse 25 in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, right, because of everything I've just told you, because we are to live lives worthy, because he saved us by his own mercy, therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbour, because we are members of one another. Don't what? Lie. Do what? Speak the truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. Let's talk about lying for a little bit. I think if you don't see yourself in this one already, then you're lying to yourself. So you really should. We lie for all sorts of reasons, don't we? I just think about the... the I, I reckon that if you just think back the last week, you can remember a lie you told and you can remember it with shame. Why do we tell them? I mean, sometimes it's just to save face, isn't it? You don't even have to lie. But we feel like people might think less of us if we don't. And so, oh, yes, yes, no, I've got the thing too. <laughs> no, I don't. We lie to avoid conflict sometimes. Right? We're just going to pretend. In our English classes, this happens very often. You say to a student, do you understand? Yes, they say. But yes, can't, can't, don't want conflict. Don't want to shame the teacher. To escape consequences. I mean, that's the easiest one, right? That's my kids do all the time. Did you do that? No. All right? You've got it on your face. It wasn't me, right? Like, it's just escaping consequences. Sometimes to get ourselves ahead. If I just tell that little lie, it's going to go so much better for me. Sometimes, in our worst moments, we tell lies because we want to hurt others. 
And actually, sometimes we tell lies because we don't want to hurt others. <laughs> We're all prone to it, aren't we? Lies of omission, just going to leave that little bit out. Lies of commission, I'm just going to put a little spin on that one. Using our words, it's astonishing the capacity we have for deception. May you stop and think about it for a moment, every single one of us. Put away lying, he says. Instead, what are we to do? Speak the truth. Speak the truth. Always, always, always. It doesn't matter if it's going to make you shamed. It doesn't matter if it's going to create conflict. It doesn't matter if it means consequences are going to come your way. Now, of course, this doesn't give you a license for um, uh, brutal honesty, as I call it. I, I know a couple of people who took passages like these to heart and decided that therefore what that meant was that they had to be open and honest and straight to the face about everything that ever came up. And you know the classic one, right? When she says, do I look fat in this? And then now what are you supposed to say, right? Is brutal honesty is, yep, right? Like... Oliver came home from school this week with a very unusual version of Happy Birthday. Shall I sing it for you? It goes like this. Happy birthday to you, no one likes you. I'm terribly sorry, but it's just really true. <laughs> you think, what a horrible thing! He's been singing it ever since. He thinks it's just the funniest thing in the world, right? Is, is that what it means to tell the truth? Well, no, actually, because we've already been told how to tell the truth before. Come back down to verse 15. Speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean walking down the street saying, you're bald, you're fat, you're ugly, right? It's just not what it means. It means to build people up with your words. To say what they need to hear about God and about themselves and, and often about ourselves too. Is, is that what, did you think of that when it says speak the truth? I often think of speak the truth means tell them about them. But actually speak the truth can often mean tell them about you. Don't lie about yourself. How are you? I'm great. I mean how are you just means hello, right? So okay, fair enough. But don't put a face on, don't lie a deception that says everything is fine, the world is beautiful when inside you're dying. How are we going to love one another? How are we going to, for the good of each other who are members of one another, care if we aren't prepared to speak the truth about ourselves? This is my sin, this is my battle, this is my challenge. This is where I fail. This is where I hurt. To speak the truth doesn't just mean tell people about them. It means being prepared to tell people about you. Which, of course, also then requires us to be very good at listening. Speaking well requires us to be able to listen well. And why, he says, well, because we're members of one another. We've seen it already in this idea of unity. We are to build each other up. How are we going to do that if we're not speaking truth about them, about God, about ourselves? We want good for our own body. And so we speak the truth. Somebody uh, gave me this little acronym this week. 
think. Think before you speak. And I think I'm going to get these words right. If I don't, I believe the people are in the room who can correct me. Uh, they, they can maybe speak the truth for me. Uh, think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it important? Is it necessary? Is it kind? I don't think you have to tick all of those boxes because some things can be necessary and not that important. You should probably speak them. And some things are really important, not strictly speaking necessary, you should probably speak them. But you need to be able to tick the vast majority of them at least and probably preferably all of them. Right? True, helpful, important, necessary and kind. Think before you speak. All right, truth and lies. Secondly, he goes on to talk about anger. Look at verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. All right, don't what? Don't sin in your anger. Do what? Well, deal properly with it. Don't let the sun go down on it. It's kind of the do. Act to deal with it. Why? Now, this is a fascinating why, because if you don't, it gives the devil an opportunity. It puts you and others in extreme spiritual danger. That's serious, isn't it? Don't. Now, strange. Verse 26 is a, is a, is a weird sentence. Be angry. It's like, is it, is it a command? Is it an instruction? Is God telling us that we must be angry? But no, because we're about to see as we go further down that actually we're supposed to put anger away. Um, it's a really weird construct if you care. It's a passive imperative. So it's a command of something that you're supposed to sort of be. It's very strange. The NIV translated as, in your anger, don't sin. I, I think that captures it. As you are angry, don't sin. Don't let your anger turn to bitterness. Don't spend your time plotting revenge. Don't have your heart turned from love, such that you act in sinful ways. He's quoting Psalm chapter 4. Uh, thank, you, thank you, John, for the encouragement to make this our own, especially in the context of anger. Right, in Psalm chapter 4, listen again as I read from verse 2. He says, How long, exalted ones, will my honour be insulted? You see, the context is that the psalmist has been wronged. He has reason to be angry. He has reason to be offended, to become in time bitter and want revenge. How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Isn't that interesting that truth and lies come up? These people who are against him have set themselves towards the things that are worthless and lies. But he speaks to his own soul. He says, verse 3, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself, and the Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry, but do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your heart, and be still. Right, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Paul's very much got Psalm 4 in mind. And how is it that the psalmist goes about it? He reminds himself, the Lord is for me. I don't need revenge. I don't need to set myself up in opposition to those who have wronged me. The Lord is faithful for himself. He'll hear when I call to him. How is it that he deals with his anger at his bed? 
offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. How is it that you deal with your anger here? It's by having a right mind and a right heart and a right attitude yourself towards God. We might often think of, well, the way I deal with my anger is by dealing with the person who's made me angry. Right? When I punish them, my anger will go. See, it's lovely. I just need to go and poof, and then I'll be fine. Well, actually, no. How will he lie down and sleep in peace? Because he knows that the Lord is his safety. He knows that the Lord wants him to be righteous. So don't deal with your anger as the Gentiles do, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, in the futility of your mind, deal with it by not letting the sun go down before you turn your heart towards God, asking him to teach you to forgive, to give you the safety of knowing you are his, calling on him to turn your mind to righteousness. Trust his provision for safety and for peace. Why? Because if you don't, you're risking giving the devil a foothold. Isn't that a scary thought? What does it mean, give the devil an opportunity? What does he want? Well, actually, I take it that what he wants more than anything else in the context of Ephesians is to turn you away from God and to create a rift in God's people. I mean, after all, what God is doing is rescuing us to himself and uniting a new people and making them one. The opportunity that the devil would love to take is to turn the unity of the spirit and turn it into the disunity that he loves. All right, anger and sin. Now look, you might well go back to Matthew chapter 18 from last term if you want to think further about bitterness. Uh, we, we dealt with that in depth then. Thirdly, he says, stealing and work. Stealing and work. Have a look at verse 28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal. Do work. Why? This, this is the bit that I found quirky about this one. Why? To share. Isn't that fascinating? Well, you might think don't steal and do work hard so that you can provide rightly for yourself. That would make sense. In fact, there are instructions in the Bible to have so that you can provide for your own family. Fair enough. Isn't that interesting here? Again, it's that mindset of the good of the body, that mindset of unity that we care one for another. Work hard so that you can share and be generous. Now, I take it that we don't have a whole lot of thieves in our midst. Hands up if you're a... Yeah, okay, that one's not going to work, is it? Right, don't steal. I mean, maybe, maybe we cheat on our taxes. Maybe that's about our version of it, right? Work hard. But the why, I think we need to take it to heart. Above all else, we want the unity of the body. What a challenge to our attitude. Why do you have what you have? It's easy, isn't it, to think, well, I've got it for me. I've got my wealth so that I can be comfortable, maybe provide for my children. I, I have what I have for me and for mine. Now, what a challenge here. Have what we have for the sake of those who are in need, for the sake of sharing, for the sake of the body. Fourthly, words and speaking good words. Verse 29 
No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Or if you jump down to chapter 5 and verse 4, I think this one kind of fits in with it as well. 5 verse 4, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Don't what? Hmm. I don't have a potty mouth. (laughs) Crude, obscene, unhelpful language, foul language. Do what? Speak what builds others up. Why? Well, do you notice it gives grace to those who hear? Isn't that interesting? We talk about the grace of God. We talk about God's gift and God's generosity. One of his gifts is that we would use words that build up with each other. It gives gifts to those who hear. Now, verse 30 is kind of buried in the middle there and is a little bit tricky. Have a look at verse 30 with me. He says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of redemption. Now, you could connect verse 30 to verse 29 and say that how we use our words is about how we grieve the Spirit or not. Or you could connect it to what comes afterwards, right? Bitterness, anger, wrath, as we'll talk about in a moment. Or you could connect it to all of it, but it still doesn't kind of answer the question of what grieves the God's Holy Spirit. What is this thing that we're supposed to not do? Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. Well, I take it it is all of it. Our attitude, our behaviour, our words. What is it that the Spirit is at work doing? What would grieve Him if we were to go against it? Well, we've seen it a whole bunch in Ephesians so far. The work of the Spirit, as Paul lays it out in Ephesians, is to unite God's people. That's what he's been doing. Chapter 2, verse 18, for example. Through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Right? The Jew, the Gentile are joined together in the Spirit. Or down in verse 22 in chapter 2. In Jesus, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Every time he talks about the joining, the union, the unity of God's people, it's in the Spirit. We even saw it in chapter 4 just a couple of weeks ago, chapter 4 and verse 3, right? Make every effort to keep what? The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father. You see, what is it that grieves the Spirit At the very least, it's our actions, words, attitudes and desires that work against the unity of the body. As we don't pull our weight, to put it negatively, as we are happy to laze around as individual Christians, me and God under a tree, that's going to grieve the Holy Spirit. As we actively work against the unity, as our words tear down instead of build up, as our language comes out foul rather than holy, as we steal rather than work, as we are angry rather than peace-loving. You want to not grieve the Spirit of God, then dedicate yourself to God's people, to building up the body that He has made. All right, let's move on. Number five, application number five. I've called it belligerence. Just a a range of words that he uses that capture a certain kind of attitude. Have a look at verse 31. 
He says, let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from among you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Don't what? Don't carry on. That's not bad, isn't it? Don't be belligerent. Uh, just read through that list again, right? Bitterness. Get rid of bitterness. Remember what bitterness is. Bitterness is that feeling you get when someone wrongs you. That's what bitterness is. And it grows and festers very quickly. Get rid of anger and wrath. I mean, I take it wrath is just the extreme form of anger. Uh, this is an interesting one. Get rid of shouting. Ha! Finally, Joe's the volume just going to have to... <laughs> it's not that, is it? It doesn't just mean being loud. The sort of person who's abrasive and overbearing. Slander, again, speaking lies, mistruths about... It shouldn't even be heard among you, be removed, along with all malice. Wanting bad things for others. You ever find yourself wanting bad things for someone else? You're in trouble. Turn to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. Instead, what are we to do? Be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another. Why? Because that's how God treats us in Jesus. It's one of those sentences in the Bible that just comes down with a thud. How can you, who have been forgiven by your heavenly Father, not in turn forgive? Speaking the truth perhaps comes into this one a little bit. Because sometimes we can't see. You, you kind of get lost in the moment. You get overwhelmed. Your anger is too much for you to bear. You, you start talking about people and you don't really notice that you've slipped into slander and gossip. And th There are so many times when we just don't even notice that we've stopped being kind. I wonder if this is an area where we ought to speak the truth in love to it. Kindly, gently with a desire for restoration and reconciliation, but to help our brother, our sister in Christ. To be prepared to receive it when somebody says it to us. All right, and sixth area of walking then, called it impurity. And it's the whole start of chapter 5 there. Uh, and this is a serious one, so I want to I delve into this one a little bit more, if I may. Uh, it's a serious topic. He says, chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talk or crude joking are not suitable, rather giving thanks for no one recognize this every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God that's a serious warning isn't it I mean can you imagine you you're just going along the Christian life I mean you're, you're kind of lost in sexual immorality you Life is one of impurity and greed. But you're wandering along thinking all is well. 
to get to the end and have Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a terrible warning, isn't it? Well, don't what? Well, he's got three things listed here, sexual immorality, impurity and greed. And sexual immorality at its heart is simply defined as sex outside of the God-given marriage. At its heart, it's, it's fornication and adultery, right? Sex for people who aren't married to each other and sex for people who are married to other people and not to each other. But of course, it's not just intercourse, isn't it? It's sexual immorality. It's everything that goes with a sexual relationship. You don't get away from it just by saying, well, we do everything except the last little act, therefore we're okay. No, no, you crossed the line a very long time ago, if that's you. Everything that comes with, with the titillation and the arousal, everything that comes with the fantasies, it's very different for men and for women. Right, for men, it's so often about the eyes and the mind. For women, it's so often about the mind and the heart. Right, blokes' sexual immorality, that they will happily just look at naked women. For women, they will happily read stories and imagine what life could be like if I had him instead of the one that I've got. Jesus says, even your thoughts are the same as having done the act, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've got to take this very, very seriously. I want to read from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sorry, I'll use both hands, we'll get there quicker. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a couple of other passages where Paul treats uh, this same topic in depth. It's, it's worth going and spending some time reflecting on. Again, because of the seriousness of the warning. It's like your risk assessment. Even if you think this is not likely to happen, if it's possible that it's going to cause death, then it's worth being right, putting things in place because of it. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, he says this, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You have him from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. You see, the, you ever wondered why you have a body? Probably not. It's one of those philosophical questions you don't really stop to think about, do you? And I shower thoughts, why do, why do I have a body? Why am I not... Just, right? Well, actually, God tells us why we have a body, whether you thought about it or not. The reason you have a body is to glorify the God who bought you with it. That's why you have it. To be chasing after these sorts of impurity is to take the thing that ought to glorify God and use it for the exact opposite. No wonder he warns that if that's you, why do you think you will receive an inheritance? If what you do is throw God's truth back into his face. You see, to remove this sort of impurity, we need to use our bodies in ways that show that we value Christ more than anything else. I mean, that's the profession of the Christian. I treasure the Lord Jesus above everything else. He is my supreme treasure. He's worth more to me than anything else. Well, then use your body in a way that shows that. 
rather than in a way that shows that you are still caught up in the idol of self. Now, they all have that in common, sexual immorality, impurity, greed. They're all a form of idolatry. And the little God is the self. You, you want to fight against these things. It starts with knowing God. That's where it begins. It starts with having Jesus truly be your greatest delight. It starts with becoming so satisfied, so delighted, so pleased in the Lord Jesus that we stop pursuing everything else, all those sinful pleasures. Make me think of, uh, of disgust. Is, is, is the picture that came to my mind. You know, the, the, the disgust response is a very helpful response that we have. It, it's designed to take us away from dangerous things. So little children, and I've got a few of them, so that's why it's current in my mind, little children will put everything in their mouth, absolutely everything. They are still learning what is good for them. And they have the taste buds that are trained to good things, hopefully, such that when they put something bad in for them, they have a disgust reaction. They spit it out. Right? Usually it's vegetables. They haven't quite learnt yet, right? We haven't, we haven't quite trained them to what is good. It can happen to us as Christians. If we stop training our minds, our taste buds for godliness, if we start allowing all sorts of other rubbish in, then when the time comes for us to taste something and we think, oh, this isn't too bad. Oliver is getting a bit of a go this week, but anyway, he's not here, so he doesn't care. Oliver came out of the kitchen one time, he was maybe three or four, with two little antenna sticking out of his mouth. crunching <laughs> Ali cover your ears I'll give you a thumbs up when we're done he'd found a cockroach just straight in right I'm, I'm done Ali I'm done <laughs> right it disgust is meant to kick in it's meant to make us spit it out this is not good for me this is not healthy this isn't what I meant to eat to satisfy my soul and to give my body what it needs and we do that with the pleasures of the world. You can't think that when it comes time to taste it, you're going to spit it out. If you've been training yourself for years and years and years and years, that's all right. It's good. It's healthy. It won't hurt me. Shouldn't even be heard of among you. No, instead, what are we to do? Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave and sacrificed. Be filled with thanksgiving. Or as we saw last week, don't walk like the Gentiles. What's the characteristic of the Gentiles? They don't know God. But you do. And so we need to learn to be filled with the love of Jesus. Why? Well, it's serious, isn't it? That diagnostic. If you value Jesus above all else, then value Jesus above all else. You can't say, I value Jesus above all else, except, except for my own pleasure. I value Jesus above all else, except for my own comfort. <laughs> I value Jesus above all else, except, I just like having the new toys. Or the relationship that makes me feel warm and fuzzy and a little bit safe. Or the fantasies, or whatever it is. 
I want to finish by, by uh, giving you a tool. I hope you grabbed one on the way in, a little bookmark um, with the word anthem on it. Uh, this is John Piper's work. I'm stealing it unashamedly. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you his description of it so that you'll understand it and know how to use it. Uh, I think it's a great tool that you want to put not in your Bible, but you want to put it in the place where you are most likely to be tempted. Uh, whether that's, if, you, if, if you're prone to reading fantasy novels that are going to take your mind to somewhere it shouldn't be, then put it on your bookshelf. If your phone's the problem, then take a photo of it and make it your background on your phone. What, put it somewhere where you're going to see it. Here's what Anthem stands for. You've got a little summary on the back side. The A, avoid as much as is possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. Avoid. You see, you were created to treasure Christ with all your heart. More than you treasure sex or sugar or fantasies or whatever it is. Now, it's possible and reasonable because there's some exposure to temptation that's just inevitable. It's plastered on the side of buses these days. If you were going to avoid it always, you'd have to close your eyes while driving. Not advisable. And he says, I say unfitting desire because not all desires for sex, food, family are bad. We know when they are unfitting and unhelpful and on their way to becoming enslaving. We know our weaknesses and what triggers them. So avoid. It's a biblical strategy, right? Think Joseph, as Potiphar's wife, laid temptation out before him. And he bolted. Actually, it made things worse for him. Right? Sometimes fleeing temptation is going to make life worse. But it's the right thing to do. Avoid, N, say no to every lustful thought within five seconds, he says. And say it with the authority of Christ. In the name of Jesus, no. Now here's my little addition to this. It's not the sort of spiritual warfare, you know, I'm, I'm reciting the magical mantra, therefore it has to work. The power in this is simply to remind yourself, why is it that you do not want to give in to this lustful temptation? Because I care about Jesus, that's why. And so because Jesus wants me to, I say no. You don't have much more than five seconds, he says. Give it more unopposed time than that and it will lodge itself with such force as to be almost immovable. Say it out loud if you dare. Be tough and warlike. As John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Strike fast and strike hard. T. Turn the mind forcefully towards Christ as a superior satisfaction. Is he saying no won't suffice? It's not enough to turn away from the wrong. You must move from defence to offence, fight fire with fire, attack the promises of sin with the promises of Christ. The Bible calls lusts deceitful desires. They lie. They make promises, but they can't deliver them. The Bible calls them the passions of your former ignorance. Only fools yield. Deceit is defeated by truth. Ignorance is defeated by knowledge. It must be the glorious truth and beautiful knowledge. We must stock our minds with the superior promises and pleasures of Jesus. Turn to them immediately after saying no. H. 
hold the promise and pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I love that song. Remember it? Fix your eyes on Jesus. The lights of the world will grow, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Here is where many fail, he says. They give in too soon. They say, I tried to push it out and it didn't work. I ask, how long did you try? How hard did you exert your mind? The mind is a muscle. You can flex it with vehemence. Take the kingdom violently. Be brutal. Hold the promise of Christ before your eyes. Hold it. Hold it. Don't let it go. Keep on holding. How long? Well, as long as it takes. Fight. For Christ's sake, fight. Until you win. If an electric garage door were about to crush your child, you would hold it up with all your might and holler for help. And hold it, and hold it, and hold it, and hold it. E, enjoy a superior satisfaction. If you want to kill lust, you must fight fire with fire. Attack the promises of sin with the promises of Christ. Cultivate the capacity for pleasure in Christ. One reason lust reigns in so many is that Christ has so little appeal. We default to deceit because we have little delight in Jesus. Well, don't, and you don't say, don't, that's just not me. I'm not really a person to delight in Jesus. That's, that's not how I kind of roll. What steps have you taken to awaken affection for Christ? Have you fought for joy? I mean, don't be fatalistic. You were created to treasure Christ with all of your heart, more than you treasure sex or sugar or comfort, whatever it is. If you have little taste for Jesus, competing pleasures will triumph. Plead with God for the satisfaction you don't have. Then look, 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 look at the most magnificent person in the universe until you see him the way he is. And finally, he says, move into a useful activity, away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviours. Lust grows fast in the garden of leisure. And we often fertilise it too, just to make it grow even faster. Find a good work to do and do it with all your might. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Abound in good work, get up and do something. Sweep a room, hammer a nail, but not your finger. Write a letter, Fic I added that bit by the way. Write, fix a tap and do it for Jesus' sake. You were made to manage and create Christ died to make you zealous for good work, so displace deceitful lusts with a passion for good deeds. Now, I hope that's helpful. I'll post a link to it on our Facebook group. You can go and read it again. Saved by the Lord Jesus, created anew to walk His way, I hope and pray that today the Lord Jesus will have spoken to your heart, that you will be the flower that blossoms and blooms. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brother John Piper and his, his way with words. We thank you for this wonderful image that he helps us with. We thank you above all else for the Lord Jesus, the one in whom you have saved us and called us to yourself and the one in whom now you teach us to live with each other and for each other. Speak to each one of us today, Father, and teach us to be your children in truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.